Hello, Blunders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 80, 80, wow, of Real Blend, a podcast that can't start a fire, can't start a fire without a spark. You guys know what that's in reference wow. to. Wow. Yeah, nothing, Springsteen. I would say it's a Springsteen reference, yeah. There's a reason for that. Uh, you didn't say it with the, the, with the Jersey soul that he does, though. I'm doing my Courtney Cox dance. Wow. You, you guys, there was a video on MTV. MTV used to, back in the day, you guys don't know this, would play music videos. <laughs> that doesn't were, sound right. They were small films that accompanied popular songs. And uh, this was before, you know, like The Hills and... Uh, what was that real world? Is that what show? was the Civil War like, Sean? It was it was a tough time, Jake. <laughs> brothers against brothers, <laughs> fathers and sons separated. It was Tell me about when you used to go to a picture show and they were twenty five cents a piece. My name is Sean O'Connell. Uh, I am the oldest man in Hollywood, <laughs> <laughs> as well as the managing director here at Cinema Blend. I am joined, as always, for all eighty episodes. By Kevin McCarthy of Fox Five in Washington D.C. I got Has Kevin never missed taking one? a drink. BDK, how are you, sir? Sean, what's going on? Yeah, I, I was actually. Um, I know you guys. I know you're joking about MTV and stuff, but I uh, there was an announcement this week that I was excited about. Do you guys remember the the videos back in the day for Missy Elliott? Like she had some incredible, oh, yeah. incredible videos. I think yeah. that she just got announced as the. Uh, Vanguard recipient, I think. Yeah, video the, the, is it like the, was it, isn't it like the Michael Jackson? I think Michael Jackson's oh, name, like is Lifetime. Which yeah. I've seen a lot of people say they should just rename it the Lauren Hill Award. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and and I, I have no problem with that. Lauren Hill's amazing. Um, but I do think uh, if you haven't seen those videos, go back because I mean, Sean does make a good point. MTV was a great music video outlet years ago, and those videos were legit cinematography like amazing video and, like so. people got carried away like guns and roses like that yeah. november rain video was like 15 minutes long. yeah but oh, I, 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 do you I guys know what the first videos. video that aired on mtv was video no. killed the radio star wasn't it that's it that's exactly right well done do, do you guys remember like, that to me that's like a lost art form and they still do it now thankfully oh, yeah. you, youtube like the vivo channels and things like that but there was something special about the cinematics involved in a in a in a, in a music video. I, I, they did one recently. I'll, I'll give credit to Beyonce and Lady Gaga. Didn't they do like a a Tarantino esque video for Telephone where they they actually used the the P wagon that yeah the, the truck had. from uh, from Kills yeah. in it. It's yeah, in yeah. the video. Like that, that stuff is cool. And most of our favorite directors got their start in music videos. David like, Fincher. Yeah, Fincher. Fincher was maybe. A, yeah. What about your buddy Mark Webb? Mark yeah, Webb, didn't he do right. a bunch of like the Green Day videos, like Twenty One Gun? Uh, what was the name of the uh, song he did? I can't remember. He was a Green Day video, a I guy who did, before he did the Spider Man um, with uh, yeah, with the the Andrew Amazing Spider Man and Five Hundred yeah. Days of Summer. That's why that yeah. worked so well as well. Yeah. Yeah. The, the yeah. other voice uh, that you're hearing in this conversation, of course, is Jake Hamilton of Fox Thirty Two in Charlotte. Uh, how many minutes are we into this? Where I, before I introduce uh, Jake, we're at least five. Five minutes. Uh, I, but I, I love your uh, your your wishing that I lived in Charlotte, though. Can't stop. Fox thirty two in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Did I say that? Oh yeah, no. You Fo- did. But I, but I love in, that you. I love that you wish that I lived. Did I say you did that? say Charlotte, but I love that you wish that I lived where your neighbor. It's just home is on the mind when I'm away traveling. Unfortunately, I'm. Uh, why are you away in, traveling, Sean? Can you say well, why? I can't. No, I can't. You say. can't say why. No, oh, but it's such a good reason. I know. Sean, is it something special? It is something special, yes. It, uh, it is something special. It is something special, yes. Oh, okay. So I'm here well, for Is it something, something that might be special a second time? <laughs> You're going to get me a lot of trouble. I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on. 
Um, reviews at the top of the show. Now, this is something, and I waited to tell you guys this. This is really special. Uh, if you guys listened to last week's episode number 79, you'll know that at the top of the show, we read two negative reviews, one-star reviews. And we um, we appreciate those uh, those takes, as Kevin pointed out. So wisely, you cannot grow unless you're getting criticism. And uh, right. we, read, we proudly read those. But then I also... Uh, sort of shamelessly ask people to um, knock those two star, uh, the, the one star reviews down the chart a little bit uh, so I don't have to see them every single time. And six new people wrote wow. brilliant, brilliant reviews for us. And that makes me really, really happy. We are going to read one of them, uh, one of them from T Cube Manning, uh, who said in his subject line, Sean said to leave a nice review. So here you go. Uh, apparently there were a couple of subpar reviews last week, so Sean said to leave a positive one to replace those. So here we are. Sean, Kevin, and Jake are three awesome film fans who bring a ton of fun and entertaining energy to the table. They are also incredible with interviews and some of the biggest guests out there. I look forward to listening every week and love the fact that at its core, this podcast is always just three great friends talking about movies for 90 minutes straight. Now, I asked Gabe, can we not read that one out loud? Because I felt bad that I was like, someone leave us a nice review. And this guy was like, all right, you asked me to leave a nice review. And, and it's a nice review. It is. But still, I, I, I felt a little guilty that I kind of like maybe what? Guilted guilted the guy? Into we guilt into- people into doing that every week. <laughs> well, every week why. we're asking people to leave reviews and listen. <laughs> why, why? It took you 80 episodes to feel guilt? Yeah, I just, I just don't understand did. why you're calling the person a guy. It was my grandma. And she was the one who was like <laughs> a new you? listener to the podcast. And she she's a huge Ice Cube fan and a massive Peyton Manning fan so that, that that's why she combined those no two she's names. an eli manning fan get no, it right she's, man she's peyton well, actually yeah technically i guess she's eli because she's from new york i guess you're yeah. right about that thank you Jake. there you go well you know my grandmother more than i do i want to thank you <laughs> and the few other people who were nice enough to leave us a positive review of course we're going to continue to read these at the top of each show and if you are a member a member excuse me of the real blend community and you haven't yet left us a review please head over to the apple podcast Leave your thoughts so we can read them live on the show. It's very important that you guys do that. It helps us grow the Blender family. Go over to the Twitter account also, at RealBlend. Use the hashtag Blenders or Blender family. There's a ton of people who are playing a a lot of fun games, film conversations. The social media channel is really active, and I think that's something special about this show. So make sure that you guys join in and take advantage of not just listening to us blab uh, every single week, but getting involved with some really great people who uh, love interacting with each other on social media. News is the very first thing that we do at the beginning of each episode. And the biggest thing that happened this past week was the release of the trailer for a highly anticipated film that I think is going to be pretty successful during the awards season. Greta Gerwig following up um, Lady Bird with her adaptation of the Louisa May Alcott novel, Little Women. And this was one of those trailers where even if you know it's kind of coming, when you see that cast, like as each new face just sort of surfaces, you're like, damn, okay, Saoirse Ronan, great. Timothy Chalamet, you know, awesome. They worked with her on Lady Bird. Oh, Emma Watson's in this. That's amazing. Oh, hey, Laura Dern. Wow, that's great. Oh, Florence Pugh is in this. Holy cow. Wait a second. Is that Meryl Streep? Dear God, like slow down, Greta Gerwig. You're out of control. Um, I will admit to not necessarily needing another adaptation of Little Women, but after this trailer was pretty blown away by how good it looked. Um, what did you guys think of it? Uh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I, I pressed play on that trailer thinking like, 
do I even really particularly care about this movie? And uh, by the end of the trailer, I thought, damn, like that's that's a movie that I cannot wait to see. Um, not overly familiar with it other than uh, I, I know the ending because of a famous Friends episode where Rachel ruins it for Joey. Um, so because of that episode, I actually know how the movie ends, which is kind of a bummer. Um, I wish I didn't. But uh, yeah, I went from not caring to really caring in a matter of about two and a half minutes. And I mean, I like the Lady Bird a lot. I thought it was a really good film. It, that also struck me as a, as a movie where I didn't need another autobiographical coming of age necessarily. And I was so blown away by um, the craft that Greta Gerwig brought to the film, by the screenplay, by the performances. And the casting in Little Women just looks amazing. Like it looks like they nailed everybody perfectly for, for their parts. Now, I'm a little bit surprised now that we've seen footage from it that it's not appearing at any of the fall film festivals. Like it's, well, it's not on the docket for Toronto. It's, it's not Venice. I guess it could be a Telluride. I know that she brought Lady Bird to Telluride, and that's usually a bit of a surprise about what plays there. But there's also a chance that it's just not finished. Like maybe it's not till Christmas Day that it opens. So um, it's just possible she's still working on it, and they just put enough together for a trailer. But, um, I, I, you know, these films that want to become uh, big players in the awards uh, race tend to show up at the fall film festivals. But then we were talking about the like the star is born, you know, you peak a little bit too early and then you're fighting the uphill battle of having to stay the front runner. So maybe it's smart. Maybe it's smart that they're keeping the cards close to the vest and, and we'll see how that plays out for the rest of the awards season. Oh, I just, I just wanted to say one thing about it. I, I don't want to th- throw this off. I, I was uh, uh, big props to Greta Gerwig for shooting on 35 mil uh, film like this. Oh, is- does she? It, this thing looks incredible. I love the way that it was shot. Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but like there was maybe, maybe this is just me being like uh, a fan of um, just like watching tracking shots of people running. But the running shots reminded me a little bit of uh, Inglorious Bastards when she's like running away. Oh, yeah. yeah, the yeah. opening running scenes in the Little Woman trailer kind of gave me that just that vibe of how it was shot. Oh, not, you're right. Not content wise, but just kind of Shoshana running. Um, away is kind of reminded me of that similar type of like the way it was filmed. Uh, but the 35 mil, like, first of all, Greta Gerwig is already blew us away as a filmmaker with Lady Bird. Um, I, I, I mean, I didn't think Lady Bird was the greatest movie ever made, but I think it was a phenomenal, phenomenally executed movie. Yeah. Um, but for someone like, you know, here's the thing, like more and more filmmakers that have names that are shooting on celluloid, um, is a big deal. And like, you know, Greta Gerwig doesn't have to make that choice to shoot 35. She has young actors. Uh, now, luckily, people like Emma um, Watson grew up on film with the with the Harry Potter movies. Those were mostly shot on film. Um, but, you know, it's cool that like these actors are being given the chance to work on film. And like, like if you look at stuff like uh, Robert Pattinson's been doing recently, the good time stuff, like it's amazing. And a lot of these actors appreciate it because it also it creates a sense of urgency on the set where Digitally, a filmmaker will tell you, oh, it's cool. We can run the camera all day and keep it rolling. But the film gives the actors an urgency that they have to kind of nail their takes, which oh, is probably why Fincher, why Fincher shoots so much digital, because you're doing 99 takes, your opening a social network. That's a lot of film to be going through. That movie shot digitally. But um, so I, I think that props to Greta for doing that because she doesn't have to and she is yeah. uh, and that alone while it's a very inside baseball thing 
is a big deal to film in general. Uh, I mean, even I mean, and what's cool about it is these is these newer filmmakers. Krasinski shot uh, Quiet Place on film. He mm. didn't need to, but he did. Um, so, like you know, that to me, there's a more of a resurgence happening with film now. I think and. The JJs, the Spielbergs, the Scorseses, you know, all these people who've been shooting on film, continuing to shoot on film for years, Tarantino. Um, and then you have these new batch of filmmakers who could easily access a Red or an Alexa Digital, and they're going for that film because they know cinematically it just looks better, in my personal Dude, opinion. I laugh my ass off. We got an invitation to um, Baywatch. <laughs> Baywatch, the television show, is celebrating its 30th anniversary. Uh, and they're trying to put together press events and they're gauging our interest. How much, how much interest would you have in covering the 30th anniversary of Baywatch? And when they wrote out in the press release the history of the show, the second paragraph said, shot on 35 millimeter Baywatch. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, that's amazing. I Kevin mean, would love that. <laughs> think about that for a second. And, 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 and I mean, we're, we're living in a time right now where an R-rated Quentin Tarantino film yeah. shot on film yep. with, I don't think there's any CGI in that movie. I don't want to uh, misquote that. I mean, we talked to him for our I podcast. heard there were miniatures. Yeah, 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 we had a whole discussion Where, where with did him I about hear the, that? <laughs> the drive-in scene, but here's the thing And I thought about this the other day, and I know we gotta move on But Tarantino That movie making over a hundred million dollars Is a massive success It's uh, oh, uh, great And the reason for it is Look at every single frame of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood How much work went into every single Shot of that movie Like that's a filmmaker who cares And I feel like when I see that Greta shoots on 35 and I watch the Little Woman trailer, you feel it. It feels like film. It feels like a movie that she actually genuinely cares to make that preserves that cinematic value. So, Well, and I'm also I, saying I'm that this is why it. when we see people who cut corners and get lazy, this yeah. is why we're criti critical of them because – there are storytellers out there that do care and take the time. You know, I'll, right? I'll tell you so a really celebrate cool, that. cool story. I was at uh, I went to that Taco Bell hotel thing. Um, if you missed it, it was on my social media. But um, he I shot was, that entire story on thirty five millimeter. Yeah, I wish. I wish. So you remember this? Remember that very, 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 very quick scene in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when they when they are lighting up Hollywood Boulevard, yeah, or whatever it yeah, is, yeah. and then and there's the a dark Taco Bell and then a light Taco Bell. Okay, yeah. that's a what. Two second shot in the film. Yeah, that took all day, all what? day. Because they, they 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 literally Quentin Tarantino went out there. My uh, I was talking to a guy. I don't want to name him or, or talk about his job, but he works at Taco Robert Bell specifically. Richardson. Yeah, <laughs> and he no no he he was showing me pictures on his phone of the day they shot that, and like Tarantino was like in these pictures, and I'm like, wait a second, you're telling me Tarantino went down to a went set to Taco Bell. For a two-second shot, didn't use yeah. a second unit, and just to get, and Richardson was there, everything, just to get a light turning on, they recreated the entire 69 Taco Bell right, um, right. just for the lights to turn on. That could have easily been just a CGI shot. Yeah. So that's why today filmmakers need to be taking lessons from people like that in regards to filmmaking. And that's why I think Greta's brilliant because she didn't need to shoot 35. And she is because she wants to create that preservation for it. And when they asked Quentin why he went by himself to shoot that shot himself, he said, because let's be honest, <laughs> you'd know it. And I'd and I know it. Hey, dude, honestly, <laughs> Tarantino impression is spot on, dude. We have been lucky enough to have some really great interviews uh, this week in particular. Uh, Kevin and I got a chance to sit down with 
Gorinda Chada for a discussion about Blinded by the Light and all things Bruce Springsteen, which we are going to have as part of this show later on. So stay tuned for that. End up being an amazing conversation. Jake was not able to join us because he was too busy running around with his new famous friend. And people who've been listening to the podcast on the regular understand that earlier this year, uh, Kevin and I were lucky enough to get a sit-down interview with Joe and Anthony Russo in the sense that uh. Kevin got the interview and I just invited myself <laughs> and bullied my way in because I was not going to miss that at all. Uh, and Kevin being my brother that he is allowed me to tag along and then he did an amazing Q&A. Well, Joe Russo in celebrating the DVD release of Avengers Endgame went through Chicago on this We Love You 3000 tour and Jake, you got a chance to sit down finally with one of the directors of a movie that you don't really care for all that. But I'm all yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's actually, it's, it's the third time I've talked to him this year, which is weird because I got him at the junket with Anthony okay. and then I got him via satellite um, a couple of months ago, right before it uh, re-released. And then I got him here for this. Uh, fans lined up since 5 p.m. the day before. No way. To meet Are you this kidding guy. me? Yeah, and get autographs, including some uh, some real blend fans, which I saw I saw some folks out there. That's um, awesome. But yeah, it was it was really cool just to. I mean, I think it's a victory lap. I think it was really classy of him. I mean, look, yes, I, I am well documented to not be the biggest Endgame fan in the world. That being said, Winter Soldier, Civil War, and Infinity War are three of Woo! not just my favorite Marvel films, but favorite superhero films ever. Um, so I was still thrilled to, to to be able to talk to him, and I always will be. Um, but yeah, we talked a little bit about the the moment when he found out that uh, the, the movie was the highest grossing film, film of all time, if he's ready to be in an endless battle with James Cameron, who's clearly going to put Avatar back in theaters when Avatar 2 comes out, and how sure. they're just going to be locked in a battle to the end of eternity. I asked him, here's what I'll say, and I'm curious as, as to y'all's thoughts on this. The Gwyneth Paltrow thing, I find annoying. This whole, yeah. like, she doesn't realize all the people she's in a Marvel movie with. Like, it just came out, like, she didn't realize she was in Homecoming. And to that, I get. You shoot a lot of little scenes, and they don't tell you really where they're going to be placed in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I get it. But to come out and say that she didn't realize that Sam Jack, like, I guess she shot, they were shooting the funeral scene, and she asked someone why Sam Jackson was there, <laughs> and they're like, are you serious? He's, he's Nick Fury. Like, right. And I even get she didn't recognize Sebastian Stan at a party. And everyone was like, he's the Winter Soldier. And I get it, like, maybe if she doesn't watch the films and they didn't have any scenes together, even that I give a pass to. But to not know Sam Jackson is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Can I? And so I asked him if it was, if, if, he, if he thought it was a bit. And he said, I gotta, he goes, I gotta think that she's kind of leaning into it a little bit at this point. And he revealed that she, he thinks that she's sort of kind of playing into the whole, um, and he tried to sort of defend her and say, you know, they shoot a lot of, you know, they shoot a lot of scenes out of context and stuff. And I just kept saying, come on, like, how do you not know Sam Jackson is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Wait a second. I'm, I'm, so I'm confused. So, um, again, I haven't, I didn't, I saw the Gwyneth Paltrow stories in regards to some of the actors she didn't know she shared the screen with. Um, the Nick Fury thing, what exactly did she say? Uh, Cause I would just, I mean, based on your story, I would assume she knows that Sam Jackson's Nick Fury probably just was asking why he was in the funeral scene. Now, that scene in particular, keep in mind, every single actor from the MCU was on location that day. Sam Jackson right. was in the back um, on the on the porch, right? Was he's it? the last one. Right, he's right. at the house. The, yeah. the that impression the that I got from the article that I read was her asking why he was there, period. Not <laughs> okay. why was he there in that scene, I but see. why was he there, period. Come that, on. that was the you, impression I got. You know she knows who's Nick Fury. She doesn't even know she was in Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah, but come on, but but Nick Fury's been a part of MCU. Dude, that's, since the that, first that Iron was Man. my argument. That was but but that was also the impression that Joe Russo had because he he knew the story that's as well. So that's weird. Even, 
Uh, so, he, so I mean, honestly, Jake, well, I'm probably reacting to you naturally because if that's really the case, that's crazy. But that, well, that's <laughs> why I asked. I said, you know, especially specifically with the Sam Jackson thing, do you think it's a bit at this point? And he said, uh, I can't help but feel like it's a bit. I genuinely think that Gwyneth Paltrow's quote was taken out of context. I really, it has to be. Because but doesn't it, don't you just get the impression that like, I mean, the fact that she doesn't, I get, just because you don't share a scene with someone, and now I'm going to Sebastian Stan, just because you don't share a scene with someone, don't, doesn't it sort of bother you that it just sort of, I get the impression that she just, she's in these movies but doesn't care about them? Like, doesn't so, that sort of oh, annoy you? I, well, 100%. I think I'll tell you that's something that's interesting reality. about that. I've run into actors, I won't name specific ones, but I've run into actors and brought up gigantic films that they were in and they have actually said to me, oh, I haven't seen that one yet. Like, yeah. I, I, I'm like, wait, I've seen Endgame three times. You're in it and you haven't seen it. And well, I, I, I find it fascinating to me because a lot of it, it's funny. A lot of people who work in Hollywood aren't like us. Like they're like they're like their lives or they'll go to the movie, they'll shoot the film and then they'll leave. And again, I'm not defending my Paltrow. I'm, I'm just saying that, like, in her defense, though, I guess I am defending her uh, in her defense. Uh, I would imagine she's been placed into scenes. Remember, like, weren't some actors in the first Avengers Infinity War and Endgame didn't know what movie they were shooting? They didn't know yeah. they were yeah. shooting. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I could, I don't think she didn't know who Nick Fury is. I just genuinely think that people aren't as fans as well, we are of these movies. You know what I mean? I'll I'll say this is just disappointing. I'll say this. It, yeah. I but don't think it, Pepper Potts has any scenes with San, with Nick Fury in Iron Man 2. Yeah. That would be the most significant movie where they would be in the same thing together. I, after that, Nick Fury was in all the Captain America movies, and she's not in those. It's funny because I, I bet you a lot of the actors, I bet you'd be surprised. I bet you RDJ hasn't seen every MCU movie. Oh, I, 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 no. I, I don't uh, think he has. I bet you he hasn't. I'm telling you. That's fair. I, I, I feel like if we... See, I, mean, he, but I don't know. He seems like such a fan, though. Like but Guardians like, 2 or Captain Marvel or something like that. Like, I could see him skipping it. But you know what I mean? Gwyneth Paltrow, people have to remember, she is so mega famous for so many other things that I think you're right, Kevin. After she's done filming her bits, she goes and does, she's like, out. Goop or, you know, travels to wherever, and she's just not plugged in Johnny Depp sense. hasn't seen Edward Scissorhands. I mean, come on, that, that's like that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, but he, he doesn't. He he famously doesn't watch his movies, though. No, There's I know, but like, but like, I always find it weird though when you meet somebody. Um, and we'll tell the story next week. But I was I was talking with an actor earlier this week, and you bring up things, and like to you, it's second nature, and to them, yeah. it's like, oh, you're right, I did do that. Oh, oh, you're right. I'm like. I mean, how do you not? I feel like I know it more than you do. Well, well you, hold you know on. What I mean? I'll bring up an example also because I think a lot of times actors, and then Gabe, I promise I'll move on after this. I think actors have a lot of projects that they are juggling that don't come to fruition. So they don't, and uh, this is the example I'll use. There's an amazing movie in theaters right now called The Peanut Butter Falcon. And oh. if people are listening to it, go see it. It's go really, it. really good. Yeah. Um, there's a character in there named the Saltwater Redneck. He's <laughs> yeah. a wrestler. Thomas Hayden Church. Who's the main. Played by Thomas Hayden Church. That part was going to be played by Josh Brolin. Oh, wow. And here's how it happened. This is a really great story. I didn't know that. The, the filmmakers had this idea for this script for a long time. They even shot a proof of concept trailer that was just them and their friends playing the parts. And they couldn't get anybody to take a look at their idea, their, their story that they wanted to tell. And mainly because their main character has Down syndrome. And they were constantly told by people who would bankroll a film, look, we can't market a movie that where the main character has Down syndrome. It's just going to be too tough to do. On January 1st of whatever year, Josh Berlin posts on his Instagram account, 
um, hey, for this new year, I want to, I'm going to make a commitment to help people. I'm going to boost uh, people's profile. I'm going to do whatever I can to help, help the little guy get a foot ahead. I don't know how many years ago this was, maybe three, four, something like that. And these guys saw it and they immediately went to his, his direct messages. And they said in a nutshell, hey man, you want to help people? I just took, that's Kevin Smith. You know how many times Kevin Smith starts a story and he like recesses it. He goes, hey man, I'm going to do <laughs> you back and listen to Kevin Smith. He constantly says, so anyway, these guys go, hey man, if you really want to help us out, we've got this great project and we could really use a boost. And Brolin wrote them back. He goes, look, paraphrasing, hey, I didn't mean that I'm going to be in your shitty indie movie, uh, but send me the script and I'll read it, right? Like in a totally nice way. And but he, but he, he, was, he was saying it in, in a kind way. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, okay, a totally right, kind right, of cool. way. Yeah, yeah. In a sarcastic kind of way of like, right. I, I don't want to get bombarded by every indie director, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. but send me your script. Well, he read it, he loved it, and he was going to play the Saltwater Redneck for the longest time. And then it never happened, and he ended up getting these guys in touch with a bunch of producers that helped them, and it essentially moved the storyline. But now, if you went to Brolin and said to him, Peanut Butter Falcon, he might be like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't even know what you're referencing, but it's something that these guys, to them, he it's got everything. their movie made. Yeah. yeah. And he well, might not even remember it because he didn't. He never did it kind of thing. And to Sean's point, e even using the Thomas Hayden Church character, which is a character, uh, for people who haven't seen it yet, the, the lead character, Zach, he is uh, has dreams of being a wrestler and he escapes a nursing home where he was being cared for by Dakota Johnson. This movie's phenomenal, by the way. I'm really happy really we good. got to mention it real quick. But Shia LaBeouf's character's in some trouble. He meets up with Zach and they kind of uh, form a friendship and then Dakota Johnson then joins because she's looking for Zach. Anyways, so Zach's been watching these VHS tapes for years of that uh, wrestler that you mentioned, Thomas Hayden Church's character, like thinks he's the greatest thing ever and wants nothing more in his life than to be a wrestler. Um, when they get to Thomas Hayden Church's house, I won't, I, I guess I'll stop with the spoiler aspect of it yeah, here, yeah, yeah. but there is an element to what we're referring to here where a fandom can be an extreme for the fan and then the person who may have be been that person for you as a fan could be different yeah. um, and yeah. or not as enthusiastic as you are. And that's kind of where I'll leave that. But that is an exactly a great point. Um, kind of you kind of steered me that way of the difference of how their work makes us feel versus what it might mean to them ultimately. See that movie. I think it's out. Was it Friday? I think um, it is. So well done. And then you Perfect. say that they, they listen to our podcast, right? They listen to our podcast. Yes, they do. They're, they and, and in fact, like opened up the phone to show me like, uh, hey, you know, we really do. I downloaded it. Gabe, Gabe, aren't we going to put their audio on? Did I not? I didn't share you the audio. I did not share you the audio. Uh, yes. Yeah, they, I'm telling you right now, do yourself a favor. That's a movie that people should go out and see. Uh, Sean and I have both seen it. It is beautiful i mean it, it's a genuinely and you know what i love about it it does not fall into cliches it yeah, is it, genuinely genuinely heartwarming very we will have we will have more on peanut butter falcon because i'm gonna uh, push to get that audio from those guys on they were really it's a great interview and I, I want more people to go see it and then you'll circle back around and i they, think it's gonna be they big. Talk a lot about the the making of it I think I it's gonna so, do so. well i'm actually in, noticing a buzz for it like and i was i didn't know anything about it prior to getting the interviews for it but i'm actually noticing People are latching on to it. And I think Dakota Johnson's fans are super excited about it. She has a huge fan base in the Fifty Shades franchise. Isn't this Shia's first movie in a long time? Yes. Um, uh, so I don't know. I, I'm, he's such a great actor. Such a great well, actor. 
In addition to that, which is reaching to a couple of the theaters uh, this week in movies, let's run through really quickly the things that are opening and talk about what we've seen. Did either of you see the Angry Birds movie part two? I did not. No. But I actually feel like I've heard, isn't it getting good reviews? Yeah, yeah. Stop it. Stop it. No, I'm not joking. I think it's actually getting good reviews. Uh, This is a totally ADD moment. Uh, I'll mention this in one sentence. Did you guys see the story where Hugh Grant said the best movie he's ever been in? Was Paddington 2. I still haven't yeah. seen Paddington 2. And it's to amazing. give Sean credit, he was on that train way before anybody else was. And apparently, Hugh Grant thinks it's the best thing he's ever done, genuinely. It's it's truly great. Yeah. It's truly made my top 10. Uh, did you guys see Good Boys? Kevin I did. did. Yeah, I saw it too. It's really funny. It's very funny. I mean, yeah. like, you know, I, I'm actually glad. Uh, do we have a couple minutes to discuss this, Gabe? Yeah. Um, all right. I want to get. Sean's thoughts on this. So I'm in a theater. I'm 35 years old. I watch it. And here's the thing. It is jarring at first to hear these sixth graders talking the way they do. But once you adjust your mind, go, oh, that was me. I mean, I talked my my friends and I talked like that when we were kids. There's something strange about hearing it in a massive movie theater, though, like watching a young kid say the things he they do or sure. do the things they do in the theater. Um, and, and the screening I went to, um, uh, I, I think I told Jake this story. Uh, there was a, an older gentleman in the bottom right corner of the theater uh, who <laughs> Wait, I... Wait, bl- Eric Eisenberg was at this screening. He told well, this did, story. Did, did he, oh, it's crazy. Go yeah, ahead. Do you want me to skip it or just... No, know, tell it. Okay. It's, so, it's funny. So I'm sitting in the theater... We're, we're about an hour in. I mean, we've seen some horrifically raunchy <laughs> things already. I mean, Sean, you know the opening of the movie. It's I mean, that's that sets the bar tone oh, yeah. for what's going to happen. So, um, like an hour in, this like older gentleman. I don't want to uh, age him, but I think probably like seventies, sixties, seventies. Yeah. Yeah. So he turns around. He gets up. I don't see him get up. I just hear all <laughs> out of the top of his mouth. He yells, "Diabolical." <laughs> And then he, and then I, and, and then what I, an interesting adjective to scream yeah. as you're leaving it. So I look down and I, and I, and I see this, like this, this figure, like this movement, this guy, like not, not, he doesn't grab the person, but he takes his wife and they, and they, and they, and they leave. And, and I, and I don't think I processed exactly what he said until I had to ask somebody afterwards. I thought maybe he was like, I don't know. I didn't know what happened. Well, he said and we were laughing so hard in the Cinema Blend text chain as Eric uh, told this story because we assumed this was a sweet old couple that yeah. saw the title Good Boys and right. they were going to see a movie about some really sweet boys and then it just becomes right. this Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg raunch fest. But the question I had and we, I was on the, on the bus back to the hotel with a bunch of other reporters is why did they stay an hour then? Because – yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 like the opening scene. They were waiting on them to become good boys. No, but I'm, I'm telling you right now. So the one thing I want to point out that about this film, which I find interesting is one, I know the bit. Yes. The kids who are in the film are legal, legally not allowed to buy a ticket to their own film. That's funny. Um, I think that's very interesting. Actually, that, that Jacob Tremblay can't walk up to a, a box office and, <laughs> and say, can I have a ticket to good boys? And they'll say, yeah, no. Yeah. I'm in the movie. (laughs) In that one, like I remember, uh, Shahidi Wright Joseph was in studio. Shahidi Wright Joseph was in studio for Lion King, and she was telling me this amazing story about going to see us with her girlfriends or her friends, and they usher walked in and kicked them out. And she goes, "I'm in the movie," and she proved it. And the guy was like, "I don't care." Like kicked her friends and her out of her own movie. But like, could you imagine? Like, you know, we all. I mean, we, we should 
share some stories one day about sneaking into R-rated movies, but like we've all done it. But could you imagine being in it and not being able to buy a ticket to it? Um, yeah, but it's really weird. Anyway, so the movie's very funny. Kids do talk like that. I'm tired of pe- seeing people go. It's 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 uncomfortable. That's just how kids talk. But Sean, I know you're the okay. rap, but is it weird for you to hear kids talk like that? You're a dad. It it is because um, I have an 11 year old who's probably the age of those kids, and he doesn't swear. Are like you that? sure though that I'm you friends? know? Come on, I am Sean. fairly confident that Brendan does not swear. Because if I happen to swear in front of him, and I don't mean something big, like even if I say ass, he's like, dad, like he gives me like a, like a thing. Language. But, but I'll say PJ's 15, probably was 13 when he first swore in front of me and gave me like a look like, is that cool? See, I still, I'm 31. I still don't swear in front of my parents. Oh, I would not swear in front of my parents. No, I do not swear in front of my parents. I think it's interesting though, because I feel like I was talking to the kids uh, from Good Boys about this and they were talking about, I was was like, literally, I said said to them, like, do do you now have permission to curse in front of your parents because of what you're saying in this movie? And they said, no, once the camera cuts, I can get grounded or they actually take my, my, my uh, allowance away. There's a scene in this movie. Where Tremblay, where something goes wrong for his character. Oh, yeah. And he screams the F word yeah. as loud as he possibly can. Oh, <laughs> and it this was is so funny. You have so to funny. imagine super bad yeah. with 12 year old kids. That's, that's, yeah. that's awesome. And even that's, more. That's extreme. a great elevator pitch. Right. Did yeah. anybody see 47 Meters Down Uncaged? No, but I, I liked the first one, and I have a soft spot, soft spot for kind of like B level trashy shark movies. I so never even saw I, Crawl. I, I'm bummed that I haven't seen Crawl. I never saw Crawl, Crawl either, but I, I like these movies. I heard that was good. I like these uh, kinds of movies. What about Where'd Isn't You Go, Bernadette? Sylvester Stallone's daughter in 47 Meters Down? And Jamie Foxx's daughter, too. Uh, um, where'd You Go, where'd Bernadette? You go Bernadette? I didn't see no. it. Damn, we're playing Linklater Blend today. Also, that's a, that's a failure on our part. What if it's his best movie or our favorites? Then we would have seen it already. <laughs> All right, well, we did see Blinded by the Light. Um, and you guys saw it a long time ago. I was able to catch up with it. Because they were going to, so this is uh, uh, this is a little regret. Um, I got invited to the premiere uh, for Blinded by the Light, which was held in Asbury Park, New Jersey, which is where Bruce uh, Springsteen and the E Street Band got their start. They had an after party at the uh, Stone Pony, very famous uh, venue where Bruce uh, first started playing when he was younger. It also launched the iconic hair metal band uh, Bon Jovi. And I just knew it was one of those deals. I'm pretty sure I texted Jake right away and I was like, Springsteen's going to play at this, isn't he? Like he's going to be there. But the studio couldn't um, confirm. They, they were like, look, we th- hope he comes. We think he might, but he's Bruce. I mean, they held he does, it in Jersey. He does what he wants, yeah. right? He essentially does what he wants. And uh, so I didn't take it. I let someone else from Cinema Blend go. And I just sat home on social media that night checking for updates. And I was like, He's going to be there. He's talking, and you guys, I know you guys have each done this too, where it's just like you pass on something and it ends up becoming a really great thing. Cause then he was there. Warhorse. I, I was saying to Michelle, Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> you on yeah. No Spielberg. They said at Warhorse. And there, the oh, next yeah. thing I know I'm, I'm interviewing Downey in LA cause I took Sherlock Holmes too. And Kevin sent me pictures with Spielberg who showed up to do the Warhorse junket. <laughs> that was, hey, you got Downey though. That's cool. That Not only fun. did Bruce show up, um, then I'm, I'm showing Michelle and I'm like, uh, he showed up. He's there, and she's like, "Do you regret?" It? I said, "No, I don't regret it. It's fine." 
It's fine. I'll go to the next thing. He then, says uh, as he went and cried in the shower. Then at the after party, um, Southside Johnny got up on stage and I said, uh, oh, Southside Johnny's on the stage. And Michelle's like, do you regret not going? I said, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm still okay. This is fine. And then Bruce got up on stage and played with them. And I said, okay, okay, now I regret, <laughs> I regret not going. That kind of sucked. I, I'm a casual Bruce Springsteen fan, and I, um, I, I, this movie blew me away, and Jake and it's I great. saw it together. It was so wonderful. I, I, so much so in regards to me being a casual Springsteen fan that I had seen him live for the first time in D.C. He did this, like, Valor show on the, on the mall um, with, like, Metallica and Eminem and all. And so I had a break in between my... I was working. I was doing live interviews at the backstage area when the get when the when the when they would come off the stage or whoever the hosts were. I remember John Oliver was back there, and I went out to watch Springsteen because I was like, I mean, obviously I know who Springsteen is, but I want to see him live. And he did like he mean, he did like I can't remember how many songs he did, but I didn't understand at the time why everyone sounded like they were booing him. Like yeah. I was like I was like they were like Bruce. So I'm like, wait, is everyone? Actively booing is it? Is it a political thing? Because it isn't born Poor in the Kevin. USA. Like, like Kevin was concerned for Bruce Springsteen. He's like, he's a talented man. I mean, like, because like, wasn't born born in the USA is like a like. There's a controversy. He was America's so, original ass. He was a. I mean, that's true. Right. Yes, but that so album I, cover. So I don't know. I thought that was. I had no clue why he was being booed so when funny. I realized it was Bruce. Well, and but it's a really sweet movie. In addition, you don't have to be a Bruce Springsteen fan to be a fan of this movie. It's just a very sweet story about a kid um, from the outskirts of London in the '80s who feels put upon, and his family's struggling, and he's going through a lot of social issues at school and at home, and how the music of Bruce Springsteen, when he's finally introduced to it, connects with him on a larger level. We had an amazing conversation with the director of Blinded by the Light, Gorinda Chada. Uh, there's a point during this interview where she and I almost elope. Uh, then we get divorced. Then yeah. we're back in a, in a loving relationship. It's an emotional and, um, roller coaster. It's an emotional, <laughs> that's the only way to describe it. So without further ado, a very fun and very passionate conversation with the director of Blinded by the Light, Gorinda Chada. Guys, we are so excited to have the director of the new film, Blinded by the Light, joining us for an exclusive Real Blend podcast. We have Gorinda Chada with us. Hello, Gorinda. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you doing? We are great. Um, this sounds like a really lame icebreaker type question, but I really have to know, like, do you have to be a diehard Springsteen fanatic to even think about getting involved in a project like this? No, not at all. You, you... It helps, certainly, <laughs> because he's <laughs> extremely inspirational. Um, but I think the movie really, it, if I dare say it, is kind of in some ways bigger than Bruce and bigger than Safraz, whose book it's based on. It's bigger than all that. And it's really about that moment in your life as a teenager when something speaks to you and you realize, okay, this is going to be my thing. This speaks to me. And this is my journey. What movie What movie was that for you? What was the movie you saw that spoke to you? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, the, my first memory of a movie was I must have been about four or five. And The Wizard of Oz was playing in mm. a posh cinema in Ealing. And... My sister and I got on a bus to go, but when the movie started, of course, it's black and white. 
and I was mm. very upset that we'd come all this way to see a black and white movie. And I re- <laughs> and I remember kicking the seat in front of me and um, being very sort of uh, upset about this whole thing. And then all of a sudden, of course, it goes into glorious Technicolor. And I remember just being completely overwhelmed by that. And, the you know, just the power and the magic of being transported into this world. So I think I would have to say The Wizard of Oz was the first film that had an impact on on me, you know, visually. Um, There was another film by Ken Loach. Actually, it was a TV film in the 60s. It was called Kathy Come Home. And it was about a woman who becomes homeless and she's got children and she's trying to protect her kids. And... um, she there's a scene in a railway station where she beds down in a railway station with her kids for the night and then these faceless social workers arrive and take her kids away from her and she's and she's like holding on and she's going you're not going to have my kids you're not going to have my kids and then they take her kids and she's left there crying and I remember crying buckets and being very very upset about that and that was a Ken Loach film that actually was made for TV, but but it was like an event movie, I remember at the time, because everyone was talking about it in England. So that had a big emotional impact on me. Mm. Wow. <laughs> um, Blinded by the Light is not a traditional musical, uh, per se. However, I think you pull a lot of inspirations from the musical genre, whether yes. it be choreography or staging and some camera techniques that I definitely picked up that you pulled over. Can you talk about some of the things that you pulled from musicals to enhance your film? Well, the other thing I forgot to tell you about was when I was also about seven, I think, I went to see The Sound of Music. Oh, man. In the cinema and loved it so much that I hid in the toilets um, (laughs) until the next show came on and then came out and watched it again and got into lots of trouble from my dad. But um, I think... I, I, I love musicals. I made a musical. I made Bride and Prejudice, you know, the Bollywood sort of retelling of uh, Jane Austen. Um, and, you know, I think Fiddler on the Roof has had a big impact on me as a, as a musical, uh, just in terms of storytelling. Um, and I think that um, in many ways, you know, Bend It Like Beckham, draws on Fiddler a little bit, especially with the dad, you know, because the dad's trying to work out what to do with his daughters. And so there are there, that that movie had a big impact. And of course, West Side Story, because it was the first time I was seeing the other on the screen, you know, um, and race depicted really in that way. Um, so I think that um, for for this film, though, I knew I wanted to not... I didn't want to do a full-on musical for Blinded by the Light. I wanted to make a film that was about the impact of music and, and more than that, the impact of lyrics and words and poetry on someone's life. And therefore, because it was about the words, it wasn't really about the music. So I didn't really want to do song and dance numbers. And I always wanted it to be about the words... So I choreographed the words throughout the movie. So I choreographed what song plays when and what element of the song, which line of the song plays to, to, to generate a particular emotional reaction from the audience. So, for example, Promised Land in many ways is our theme song 
uh, in the film. And when I found this beautiful acoustic version of Promised Land by Bruce, which I found later when I was editing, um, I was so moved by the way he sang those words that I cut a whole sequence around that song that wasn't originally in the script just for uh, for the impact of using those words at that time with the images that I needed. It's it's the part where after the dad break uh, rips up the tickets. Mm. You know, uh, we spoke in uh, in DC about something I found fascinating. Your leading actor did was not actually a fan or did not wasn't too familiar with. Bruce Springsteen. And one of the cool things about that when we were talking at the in DC was that he said that his character learned about Bruce kind of in the same time as he realistically kind of became a fan or understood Bruce's uh, music. Did you, once he was cast and once he was playing the role, did you guys specifically said, let's, I want you to be introduced to these songs naturally on set? Or did you let him listen to the music to build into the character? Or was it actually a natural progression of an arc of becoming a fan? Uh, well, in the audition process, what I did with the few actors that I'd shortlisted was I auditioned them three, like, I think it was the third audition. I did, a, I did two regular scenes one with a mother, one with a girlfriend. And then I put on Born to Run on a speaker mm. and said, right, show me what your character would do now in character. And and they were struggling with that, the actors, mm. because they didn't know Bruce Springsteen's work and they didn't quite know how to deal with that. But I and I knew that. So that's but that's what I was going for to see if they, if they could make me believe that they were Bruce Springsteen fans. Yeah, and then once uh, I cast, so it was at that moment that I thought, okay, I'm going to cast Vivek as as Javid, and I'm going to cast Aaron as Roops because they both fitted those parts very well. Um, it was at that point I said to them, "You need to go and listen to Bruce Springsteen now because." Oh. You need to, un well, certainly for Roots, he, need to he needed to immerse himself in it because he was a lifelong fan in the film. Um, but with right. Vivek, I said, you need to understand the power of words. It's the power of words and poetry, and that you'll get from Bruce. And so, yeah, I asked him to immerse himself, that and uh, all the John Hughes movies. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how timeless they are? Yeah, absolutely. He's now, I just saw a piece he's done on uh, IMDb where he talks about, um, you know, that being one of his favorite movies that, that was given to him for research. <laughs> Whereas those well, movies say anything, you know, all these movies are part of our upbringing. You know, he did it for research. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's very funny that you mention uh, lyrics and words um, because the most meaningful uh, part to me, the part that hit me the hardest is when you used a bit of uh, music that I consider to be my utmost favorite Springsteen, which is Clarence's sax solo in Jungle Land. Uh, and you layer it over the riot scene. And I would love to just hear your insights into why you chose to use that at that point, because I cannot hear that part of Jungle Land without getting goosebumps every single time. Like it just it stops me cold in my tracks. And to me, is one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever. And then you put it over a, a scene of chaos. And I, I'd love to hear your thought process on that. 
Can I just say I love you? And if I wasn't yeah. married and you weren't married, we'd be together right now. <laughs> Good, thank you. <laughs> um, Jungle Land is my singular favourite song of Bruce's. And I was absolutely gutted initially because I couldn't find a place for it anywhere in the film. Because the, cause the s- lyrics, the story is so specific and the journey that the song takes you on, there's no way I was going to make that fit with Jarvid's story. And I was deeply aggrieved at this because it was such an important song to me. And then one day I was really thinking about this and I was listening to it and I had the epiphany of playing the saxophone solo over the riot scene because it's very spiritual, as you say. It's a very spiritual piece of music, the way it sort of rises and then comes down and then rises again and then the way the piano comes into the song. I mean, it's, it is a very sort of emotional roller coaster, that song. And so once I heard the saxophone over the riots and also the jubilation of Javid running to get his tickets. So the saxophone was supposed to belong to the jubilation of running to get the tickets, but then when it slows down and is played over the riots, it's like no one could have written a better piece of score for for what I was doing at that point in the movie because I was juxtaposing his innocence um, and his pure love of Bruce with the hate on the faces of these other people. Um, and the, and then I, and I wanted the piano to come in to play over, you know, the violence that then ensues. So it's poignant. And then the very last verse works. But I had the lyrics, you know, outside this, you know, uh, uh, the streets on fire in a real death France and the, uh, and the poets don't write anymore. And anyway, so I couldn't, um, I could, in throughout this movie, I hadn't cut any Bruce songs to fit. I had only, I'd been very honourable about the Bruce songs and used them in their entirety. I didn't play around with Bruce. But for this sequence and this song, I really needed to cut Jungle Land. And I felt I couldn't do this without Bruce's permission. So I was going to New York to see him on Broadway and after the show, I met him and I said to him, I, I have a really serious question to ask you. He said, oh, how's it going? I said, it's going great. But I need to do this with Jungle Land and I just need your permission. And I explained to him the way of cutting it. And I explained that all I can hear is Clarence's saxophone over this. But it's a scene of tremendous hate and rioting. And, and I kind of needed him to be OK with it. And he kind of looked at me and he was very intense and he said, I think Clarence would love that. You must do it. Wow. So that's what Bruce says. So then I got even more goosebumps. And then I just, and that's, and that's exactly what happened. And it's so interesting because real Bruce fans pick up on this. Actually, Brian, the editor of the Rolling Stone, he asked, he's the only other person that's asked me this question. And, and he said the same. He thought, how did you put those two together? And I think it's just the fact that when something really speaks to you, you know, you, it has its own language somehow and it just fits. And I feel that with music, you know, I mean, when I made Bend It Like Beckham, I had no idea that film was going to be the big hit that it was. I mean, I had no idea. And I had, I had an iPod 
I had a playlist on the iPod of songs that I liked. And I'm like, well, I like that song. Let me put that here. I like this song. Let me put that here. So that whole soundtrack of Brenda Like Beckham is based on songs off my iPod uh, at that time. So I move on up. You know, I have Blondie, Atomic. I mean, songs that shouldn't make sense, really. They're so eclectic. But they somehow fit because they were songs that I was emotionally connected to and listening to. And I think that's... When you, when you make a film with music, I think that's the power. Is It's how you connect to that music emotionally. And what the lo- if anyone had said to me, I've made a, a jukebox musical, I would be absolutely gutted and devastated because I was trying to do the opposite of that. I was trying to make the words matter and the music matter as part of the the storytelling as a director and making the the juxtaposing of the pictures and the music and the words feel really cinematic and therefore larger in some ways, as I said, larger than Bruce. Yeah, I mean, you definitely achieved that for sure. And I, and I talked to you about this in DC. I loved how you projected um, the lyrics on the on the on the uh, on the walls. Um, I, I was fascinated by you know you have Ar Rahman uh, involved in your in your music and and composing, but your 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 movie is specifically centered around the idea of how Bruce's music affects these these characters' lives, and obviously it becomes bigger than that. What is the task of, of a filmmaker? in taking somebody who's making a score for your film and and also dealing with heavy soundtrack usage. Um, you're really blending the two in a way that does does A.R. Rahman's uh, music have to stay in tune or on point with Bruce's songs? How, how does that work? Well, the music, the score of the film is interesting because what I, uh, when I, sh- I told you about showing the film to Bruce, right, in New York... Yeah. Um, so when I showed the film to him, you know, after, you know, he said he really loved it and everything, I had another plan. I had another agenda and my agenda was to talk to him about score. And so when we sat discussing the film towards the end, I said to him, you know, I need, I need to do something else with your music now. I do need some score. And he said, wow, he said, this film doesn't need a lot of score. He said, there's a lot of music in it. I said, absolutely, I agree with you. However, I said, the way I come in and out of songs is very abrupt because I'm honouring you. But what I need is is to have some piano instrumentations of your songs that lead me in and out like score. So, for example, when Javid is watching TV before the river comes on, what you're hearing is a piano version of the river being played. Mm. Like it's like humming its way into the scene, almost like getting it to introduce you. Exactly, and the same at the end when uh, Javid is ha- making his speech halfway through his speech. Promised Land comes on very subtly on, in a piano, and it's underscore, but it is Promised Land, the tune, mm. and that those are the things that make it emotional. And you don't quite know why, but then you. Bruce fans will understand it's promised land, but mm. but other people might not. But it's that same song that he was listening to when he first discovered that his writing was his promised land. So I'm using it like score. So I said I need to do sort of piano versions to help me in and out of some of the songs. And the same I did with Prove It All Night when he writes the poem for the girl. And Bruce said... Hey, we can do that. Max can do that, or someone else, one of the other East Street band people. <laughs> so they can do that. And then he went, 
hell, I can do that. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, can my day get any better? Um, and uh, and then as time got on, he got, you know, he was busier and busier and he was still on Broadway. So I ended up doing it with a wonderful pianist in London, but I had his blessings to do it. Um, so that became the main score. However, there was... I did need a cue for Javid. I needed yeah. Javid's cue, you know, all the way through, and his parents to some degree, you know. Um, and I just made a film with A.R. Rahman uh, called Viceroy's House, and I told A.R. about this film, and he was absolutely super psyched, and he was like, can I remix Born to Run, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> However, I said it would be great if you would write this one theme for me. And so... So AR wrote that piano, that do 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 do. So he wrote that and developed it, and then when Javid does finally write proper lyrics for his friend and goes across the road, yeah, those became the lyrics of the song that AR Rahman has now made for the film <laughs> so there's an in, there's an asian song so at the end of the movie on the sound on the roller there's obviously born to run then there's bruce's song i'll stand by you and then there's the third song is ar Rahman's song which has some uh, hindi lyrics in it actually it's oh, on the wow. sound yeah it's on the soundtrack so it's taking that theme and then it goes into sort of a bit of hindi then it comes back um so it's an English-Hindi mix. And in India, when the film's going to be released in India, they're, going, they're cutting a promo to that song because, of course, AR's a big shot in India. And <laughs> so we've kind of got this Bruce element. We've got the lovely piano. We've got the acoustics. We've got the 80 songs. And then we've also got an AR Rahman song now as well as the score for the film. But, yeah. but that's the world that I inhabit and that's the world the film inhabits. It's like anything is possible and culturally that's what someone like me is about. You know, someone like me, the way I live is I can, I can like listen to Bruce over here. I can then go and listen to Indian music over here. I can witness someone, you know, being racist to me with a slur or I can see something on TV, get upset about it. I can be upset about it for a moment and then I can go and have a great time with my kids at in and out or something and have joy there. Like, you know, our lives are this mix of tragedy, happiness, joy, pain, and the music guides us through all that. How we listen to music, for me, you know, that guides me through all that, you know. On a, on a, on a, on a joking note, from a serious uh, answer you just gave, but you mentioned in and out and you're talking to a show that is very, very vocal about our hamburger um, opinions. Really? Uh, I, I, I am an in and out guy and the, the gentleman, other gentleman there, Sean is Shake Shack. Can you please settle us a debate here? In and out versus Shake Shack. You have to give us this. Sean, we are now divorced. Oh, <laughs> yes. we were so in love. We were. We nearly we had it. <laughs> we're married. I mean, happened. How can you even compare anything to In and Out? No way. No Have way. You tasted those fries. They're terrible. 
They're potatoes. They're proper potatoes. They've got skin on them. They literally sliced the potatoes in front, in of, front us. of us. How could they be bad? Oh my god! You know, in England, we crave in and out. We crave it because it's uh, the best. It's the best. Yeah. All right, I will take this defeat today. <laughs> that is fine. I will wear this defeat. Uh, I want to give you a chance because I'm not sure you've been able to speak about it yet. Um, but you had your premiere uh, at the Stone Pony, well, uh, in in Asbury Park. And then you have uh, an after party at the Stone Pony, which again, th- there's a theme that's that's running throughout your film that's really beautiful about um, being immortal and your work living on, you know. And there's all these places that have such history. And it, you, to a Bruce fan, you mentioned Stone Pony, and we're just like, this is the birthplace for us. What was it like to have an after party for a premiere where Bruce gets up on stage and? performs with Southside Johnny. <laughs> oh, my God. So I've got goosebumps. Okay, I'm back in love with you again now, Sean. So, <laughs> you brought me back now. Um, Stone Pony. You had me at Stone Pony. Um, <laughs> basically. I had you a double-double. Come on. <laughs> so what happened? I mean, I. so look, the biggest thing was that Bruce gave us his music. That was it. He didn't want to come to Sundance because he didn't want to overshadow the film with him he wanted it to be you know I made the movie he wanted he said this Gorinda's movie if I come there it'll be a pony show it's her movie let her do it and so I respected him for that and then and then as the film went on and people sort of liked the film I was like deeply grateful for him for giving us the music I didn't really need anything else from him Um, when it came to doing the premiere obviously the usual Places came up, New York, L.A., you know, for those glitzy premieres. And I said from the beginning, we have to go to Asbury Park. That's where it matters. Um, and and people were like, oh, no, there's storms in Asbury Park. There's going to be, you know, hurricanes and all kinds of stuff. And no one will go there from New York. And, right. And I was like, but the people from Asbury Park are there, you know. Yeah. Um, so it was an interesting thing where, in the end, uh, I, they said, great, okay, Asbury Park. And I wanted to do it on the beach, actually, so everyone could come. Uh, but they were, gonna, they, they were right about the weather. And, in fact, that night it was terrible. And we had planned to screen the film at the Paramount Theatre and then we were going to go to Stone Pony. But because of the rain, we couldn't use the outside bit. So we ended up staying in the convention centre, sadly. Mm. Um, but the... But, it was an incredible night because the day before our premiere, Patty had put a picture on Instagram uh, of them in from London of a of a London bus with "Blinded by the Light" on it, and she was like, "Oh, so excited! Just see this bus in London." I'm like, "London? They're not here! Oh my god!" <laughs> so I honestly didn't know if they were going to come or not, and oh, and wow. he was on holiday. His daughter, you know, had her horse riding commitments in Europe. And so I had sort of told myself it's not going to happen, but we were going to still have a really great night. And then, of course, we turn up and there he is on the red carpet. And it was beautiful. And he said, I'm told that, you know, he wanted to he wanted to come for me. And he wanted to, you know, honour the film. And, um, and it was a beautiful night because he 
gave me lots of hugs and I got to hold his hand as I walked down the carpet and he was and Patty was very excited so I can't wait to see the film again and it's so great you're a woman and she was all about you know girl power and everything and 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 then when I sort of got up and made my speech about you know the timing of the film in terms of Brexit and and all the hate that I was seeing around me and how I wanted to say something about that with this film. He and Patty were sort of clapping and cheering and, you know, about the political message of the film. And then um, I was stood there when um, Patty said, are you going to get up on the stage now, Bruce? And Bruce went, ah, I don't know. And Patty said, I think you should. And I, I don't know why, who the hell I was to say this. But I found myself saying, you know, Bruce, if you don't want to get up there, you don't have to. (laughs) I said, you've done enough, man. It's okay. And the next thing is on the stage. (laughs) And that was awesome. He just got up there and the crowd went mad. And then here's the best thing. This is a real geeky thing. Here's the best thing. So I was in the sort of VIP area filming it and I put it all on my Facebook live and it's all wrong it's all come out sideways and everyone's yelled at me for it but I had it all wrong anyway I was on the VIP area and then he did the one song that I was really gutted that I couldn't put in the film it's one of my favorite 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 Bruce songs and when I first got into Bruce I used to play this constantly and that's Sherry Darling Sherry Darling, yeah. Oh, my God, I love that song. And he does so many different versions of it. And so he started playing that. And I was like, ah, I've got to get to the front. And so I had my camera playing on Facebook Live. And then there's this sea of Bruce fans in front of me. And I'm like, I've got to get to the front. I've got to get to the front. So I'm, like, going through it. And they're all, like, trying to stop me. And then they look around and they go, oh, it's the director. It's the director. Let it through. Let it through. <laughs> so all these Bruce fans are going, oh, it's her. It's her. Let it through. So I've got this, like, really weird footage. And then finally I get to the, the front. And there's Bruce up there singing away. And I'm at the front. And then I'm with all these wonderful people this is what made the premiere for me. I mean, with all these people, and one of them took my phone and said, you be in it, you be in it with Bruce. <laughs> and then he took my phone, and then I'm sort of dancing away, and then all these other fans are dancing with me, and we're having the best night, and, you know, Bruce is up there playing away. And It was your it was your Courtney Cox moment. <laughs> it was my Courtney, but I didn't go up. They kept saying, go on stage, you should go on stage. And I'm like, not in this outfit, not in this outfit. <laughs> but it was very special and, and I later heard that Bruce was had a brilliant time. Tracy Nurse told me he'd had the best night because he just was sitting in a theatre in Asbury Park with all these people watching the film. Had his popcorn, you know, had his wife, had one of his kids there. And they were, like, just enjoying the movie. And, um, yeah, it was a he had a great night. That was good, too. Well, your passion for uh, not just Bruce, but filmmaking and storytelling and music all comes shining through uh, in Blinded by the Light. And we cannot thank you enough for spe- uh, spending some time with us on the Real Blend Podcast. We're sending everybody that we know to the theaters starting this Friday here in the U.S., uh, August 16th. Go see this 
not only amazing tribute to Bruce Springsteen, but just a fantastic tribute to how uh, music and lyrics can hit you in the most unexpected ways and how you can connect with messages uh, in fantastic songs that stand the test of time. Uh, Gorinda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And I've got one last anecdote for you, since you're such a big Bruce fan. So at the premiere, um, actually in London, Barbara Carr said to me, she said, you know something, Gorinda? She said... You you really inspired Bruce with how you used his songs in the movie. And I was like, oh, thank you, thank you. And she goes, no, no, I mean it. He, you inspired him so much that he's gone and directed his own movie because of you. And what? So Western Stars. Yeah. He's it's going to be in Toronto. Yeah. He's the director. No kidding. Yep. So that's he, insane. Isn't that insane? So he's <laughs> so it's Western Stars directed by Bruce Springsteen and Tom Zimmy, of course, but it is Bruce, and Bruce was inspired to do that after the film. So, because of you. Yes! <laughs> because tramps like us. Maybe we were born to direct. <laughs> that's outstanding. I love it. That's a I great little it. story. Yeah. So, oh, you know, it's, he gave everything to me and he trusted me. And, you know, it's all payback time, payback time. Yeah, he gave, he gave you the songs for free. Like, let use them for free, which is amazing. Not quite free, but almost. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. Yeah, almost. You know what? Like what great value In and Out is. You know, yeah. to the to the hamburger oh. eating world, the great value and quality. Yeah. There's a good That's analogy it. there of Miranda, our music we're budget. We're divorced again. We're divorced again. Yeah. See, Shake Shack would have been the full music rights. That's how yes. much that would have cost because it's so expensive. In and Out is the value, and it tastes just as good, or even better, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again so much for your time. Thank we really you. Appreciate It's a pleasure speaking with you. All the best. Thank you. We cannot thank Gorinda enough for coming on to the Real Blind Podcast to discuss Blinded by the Light. The film is coming out in theaters. You guys really need to go out of your way to go see it. It's been really funny. Like this year has been heavy on musical, not quite biopics, but, you know, Rocket Man, Yesterday, uh, This, Blinded by the Light. Uh, they're building off of Bohemian Rhapsody. This is right up there with uh, with the best of my... I, I love Rocket Man and I loved this movie too. And I don't think you have to be a huge Bruce fan to really um, connect with it. I think the material is just really, really strong. And you can tell by listening to her, her passion for the subject matter. And she had some great stories about the, the premiere and everything too. I have a question for you guys. If they were to make that movie about each of you, who would be the musical artist that um, would kind of have that impact on your life and who you are. Wow, that's interesting. Um, my early answer would be the Ramones. Uh, the Ramones are the band who, I, I like Long Island in what, during the 80s when I was growing up was hair metal and arena rock and there was a ton of holdover classic rock, uh, classic rock stations in Long Island. So it was a lot of Steve Miller and... Uh, Doobie Brothers, a ton of Led Zeppelin and the Eagles and everything. I, while I think that music is fine, it never really connected with me. And when I found the Ramones, God, there was like three chords and, you know, just a driving beat. And I was so hooked. I was buying Japan CD imports of um, Ramones albums that I couldn't find anywhere because I was so hooked on them. And then that threw me into... Um, Minor Threat, 
and Danzig and all those bands and but the Ramones would probably be it. I used Kevin? to. I, it's funny you bring up the Japanese imports. I used to um, for Lincoln Park. I would do the same thing. I remember like getting the Japanese imports because there was a song they had called High Voltage that was like only on the Japanese cut of the Hybrid Theory album. And I was like, I, but I would say my fir- uh, it's a tie. It's gonna be the first Corn record or the first Slipknot record. Like because nice the first Corn record and first Slipknot record were produced by this guy named Ross Robinson, and I had never heard heavy sound. Like that before, he captured this very raw, um, disturbingly like grungy guitar sound that was like so interesting to me. Um, and I remember hearing the first Corn record when I was like ten or eleven, and hearing Blind for the first time, and just wondering like how the heck they got their guitars so low. They were like in drop A, which is just like <laughs> basically like a bass string. Um, and so I've been playing guitar since I was a kid, so I always. I always like looked up to their sound, so I would say the first Corn and first Slipknot records. It's funny because I, I I wouldn't say those records from a lyrical standpoint because Jonathan Davis and Corey Taylor, the lead singers, both those bands, you know, they're dealing with some super emotional things in those songs that I couldn't relate to at that age. Um, but it was the music. You mentioned the three chords you heard in the Ramones. It was it was hearing Brian and Monkey, who are the two guitar players, ahead and Monkey for. Corn or um, you know Mick and Jim's guitars for Slipknot that or even gosh I mean I, I just once I want to shout out Dimebag Daryl the greatest guitar player who ever lived from Pantera the first time I ever heard Cemetery Gates um, those that sound that guitar sound that's that would be my um, Jake what's yours Gabe, Gabe Gabe hates me right now for bringing this topic up Jake what's yours uh, very quickly probably and you guys are going to make fun of me but probably Garth Brooks um, early nineties country. It's very cliche in that early 90s country was, you know, stories about mama and my dog and a good cold beer and uh, my good old pickup truck. And uh, Garth Brooks had a different sound. He just sounded different and he told stories. If you listen to the songs of Garth Brooks, they're really dark, um, sometimes depressing, heartbreaking, uplifting sometimes, but just the borderline stories, like stories that you would tell your buddy at a bar. And uh, and he still sounds different from every other musical artist. Um, everyone else is. I mean, there's a reason he is the number two selling solo artist of all time behind Elvis because he yeah. transcends. Um, he transcends country music. So for me, it was uh, my yeah. first CD was uh, was Double Live. I like how well, different how different all these uh, picks were for us because it just shows you where where we all came from and everything. Tell us yours. Go to social media and tell us yours. I want to hear what other people say about this because that's a really interesting question that I wish you didn't ask at the very end of this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Gabe. I'm sorry. I thought it would be like a quick like Speaking of brilliant storytellers, our blend game this week is a hashtag Richard Linklater blend. And I want to emphasize that we're playing the hashtag full name of the person because it was Gabe's hope that it would transcend the people who just listened to the show. And if we did like hashtag link later blend, people might not quite understand what that is. But if you see like hashtag Richard Linklater blend and you like Richard Linklater or the act or an actor who we choose or uh, someone along those lines, you might be like, oh, I like Richard Linklater. What are these guys talking about? And that is working because we've realized that there's a lot of people um, beyond our regular listeners who are weighing in with their picks for this week. Um, but with Where'd You Go Bernadette coming into theaters, we decided it was a great time to sort of celebrate his filmography. And Jake, I've been told you get to go first. Wait, before Jake goes, did anybody like, – no one did the junket for that, right? Like uh, any, all No, it was, the, it was the same time as, uh, as Hobbs, Hobbs and Shaw in Hawaii. I was just wondering if anyone asked uh, Richard Linklater about his, his original middle name before he changed it. Did you guys hear about this? He like he no. he removed now and no now and from his last name. You guys didn't hear about this? 
God in heaven. Jesus Christ. You must have long arms because that was a reach, dude. No, no. no. I mean, he, he had it legally removed. I think it was somewhere in between boyhood. He removed it. It was originally Richard... Link uh, now and later. Um, I've heard so the, I, uh, yeah. the fourth yeah. installment of the, of the Before uh, series uh. is going to be before Kevin makes that joke. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Gabe, I'm trying, dude. I'm doing my we're best. It's my Jake, fault I asked the question. Go. Jake, Jake, all. Uh, here's the deal. I, I really do love Richard Linkletter <laughs> films. One of the things that is consistent in all of his movies is that his movies just always just have a ton of heart. Um, no matter sort of what the theme is, what the plot is, there's just a genuine heart and love for people and people's stories and the connections amongst people and then for filmmaking as well. Um, but one film that for me is separate in its own um, tier of Linkletter films and because of an X Factor, X Factor that X Factor being rewatchability is mm. School of Rock. Oh, nice. Um, I, I could sit down and watch School of Rock Probably once a week. I just think it's such an unbelievably enjoyable film. It is made with the skill and precision of, of the best of Richard Linkletter's work. It is made with the heart and soul of the best of Richard Linkletter's work. But I mean, I'm not going to sit down and rewatch Boyhood every. You know, every I couldn't sit down and rewatch Boyhood every week. Uh, as much as I love the you know the, the, the you know the sunset movies. Uh, I, you know, I couldn't sit down and rewatch those. I couldn't sit down and rewatch Days and Confused every single week. But School of Rock is just such a warm cinematic blanket that I could just pull up um, over me and just just curl up on a couch and enjoy. I think uh, I actually think Jack Ra- oh, Jack Black deserved an Oscar nomination. I thought his performance in that's the best of his career, and just so I mean, the kids are fantastic. Uh, Joan Cusack is fantastic. Everything about that movie works, um, and I think it is the perfect blend of what makes. Richard Linkletter movies so great um, that heart and soul that genuine love of people and telling people stories but also for me the, the, the reason it's elevated is the um, the rewatchability factor someone said on Twitter and they just nailed it <clears throat> it's one of those films where like the lead actor is so perfect for the material absolutely that I don't know how you make that movie if you don't have Jack Black right? I, I, can't, I can't picture it I can't picture it I never saw yeah. did you guys ever see the, the Broadway musical I have not I no. never. No, but, but, I, but and I, I interviewed yeah. the guy, and I mean, I, th- I think the guy kind of basically has to do a Jack Black impression. You kind of sure. have to. Yeah, exactly. Um, I am going to. I get to go next. Kevin, you get to go last, and it's interesting because um, Jake, I agree with you. School of Rock is, an, is a great, great film, uh, and has the rewatchability factor. Mine necessarily does not. Um, I picked Boyhood because a, amazing um, pick. Well. And I feel like I say this on a couple of times when I make these picks, like I'm blown away by movies that shouldn't exist. Like, like there's just no way that that should have worked at all. And for people who aren't even aware, like he came together once a year with his core cast and just filmed them. Uh, and I, what was it? 12 years? Is it yeah, 12, 12 years? years. Man? Yeah. And so it's a story of this boy uh, in Texas growing up and his family his his um, mother and father and who are in a loving relationship to start uh, and eventually grow apart. And, you know, people are giving a lot of credit to Tarantino and Once Upon a Time for being like the ult- one of the ultimate hangout films as, you know, best buds. But all of Lankletter's films tend to be hangout films, whether it's Everybody Wants Some, uh, whether it's Dazed and Confused, you know, Last, Last Day of School. Fly. Last flag, last flag flying. All, the entire before trilogy is just a day in the life of these characters. Where are they at? And and he's done it on so many films. And then in Boyhood, 
he does it 12 times. He essentially does 12 hangout moments, but each time he checks back in with these characters, because he's allowed to organically develop the story as he's going, he can explore so many different things and it all feels so honest and it all feels, um, it feels scripted, but not. And, and again, it's there, there's some magic involved in it because it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be as good as it is. It shouldn't be able to cover the amount of, of emotional span that it does. And, uh, and you're right. I, I won't ever really sit down and be like, oh, I'm going to watch boyhood today, but as an accomplishment for what it is, uh, it, it floors me that it still has all of the uh, honest, you know, emotional storytelling that he likes to bring to his projects. Uh, and it's and and if I didn't pick Boyhood, I would have went with with one of the before uh, stories because I also just love the fact that every couple of years he decides to check back in with these characters, see where they're at, and uh, and no one does that as well as Richard Linklater does. Who, uh, in my opinion, beat so. him for best director that year? Was it Inuritu for Birdman? Uh, yeah, I believe it was. That's a tough and, pick. And, yeah, and and I don't know why. That's one of those Oscar races that felt like everyone was like, "Oh, it's got to be Boyhood. Oh, it's got to be Boyhood." And then for and then somewhere along the marathon race, they just thought, "Oh, well, what if it isn't?" And I was like, "No, no, no!" I, it's I still, feel like the the backlash is. came when someone suggested that Boyhood was just a bit and nothing beyond the bit, and that's and that's and that's so not true. But I, I remember that being. Um, once again, this is that was one of those Oscar races where it was it was that movie until it wasn't the La La yeah. Land, the Social Network, whatever the case may be, um, yeah. the, the 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 Star Is Born, and um, I remember being really dis- and I love Birdman, don't get me wrong, but I remember being really disappointed that Linklater was about to have his moment and then kind of had it robbed from him. Kevin, your pick? Yeah, I mean, I also went with Boyhood. I mean, I, I do love School of Dwayne Johnson, too. That's a great movie, but I, I just uh, think that I think that Boyhood... <laughs> good save, good save. Here's why I think Boyhood is my favorite. It's like it's funny because like we talk about rewatchability, and we all can sit here, and we all know that some of the greatest movies ever made are not rewatchable. Um, like, I'm, I'm not throwing no, on... Right. I'm sorry. I mean, you think about it. I mean, I don't think... I mean, again... Like, I, I think there's a great example. Like, Schindler's List, for example. That's not a movie you're popping on. I, I haven't even finished Schindler's List. Uh, I started it, and it was just, I was just mentally not able to get well, through it. And not to, detour, not to tr- detract, I swear to God. But this is an honest thing that I often think about. Because when people are critiquing Endgame, not that I'm just defending Endgame, but they're like, well, I've seen it five times, and by the fifth time, like, the scene where, the, it just doesn't work. At, but, but I think, shouldn't a movie only have to work that first time? Like, isn't that its responsibility to work the first time, right? Yeah, I mean, the respon- right. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I, I would argue that people like Jordan Peele are 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 allowing you to have different experiences sure. multiple times. But yes, that first experience is the is your is the way you're grabbing your audience because you have to be able to get them in that first experience. Boyhood, to me, I went with because it's it's the ultimate director showcase. Um, and here's why I say that. So. Directing is such a broad term, um, but when it all comes down to it, in my opinion, the director's job is to tell the story, keep consistent continuity with their actors, and keep a consistent continuity of tone throughout the film. The cinematographer is the one who shoots and lights the scene, the score is done by a composer, the actors are doing their jobs. The director has the whole movie in his mind, and he, he or she has the whole movie in their minds, and they basically have to 
keep everything in line. So if Eddie Redmayne's doing theory of everything and in the morning he's playing Hawking at, you know, with uh, out of the wheelchair and then at lunch he's playing him with uh, a cane or uh, or at breakfast or dinner he's playing him running around. I mean, like, you got to think about the director is the one who has to say to Eddie, here's where you are. Okay, so mm-hmm. just remember, right before this scene, you did this, even though at lunch you were 20 years prior. Um so you got to think about Linklater, for example, on a film like this, the scope of something like that, where you're meeting up, you know, very quickly every, you know, throughout this 10 to 12 year span, and you're keeping a consistent tone of emotion throughout. Meanwhile, every one of these actors is off doing other projects. Um, everyone's doing other films. It's like, it's like the animated movie world, right? Where an actor is like, takes three years to voice an animated character and they do other roles in between, but to the extreme. So to me, Linklater with this film, um, emotionally set a bar where it showed, in my opinion, the true job of a filmmaker, of a director, um, to continue a tone and continue a story and continue your actor's believability. Because if you're one note off, if Arquette comes back for her middle of the movie scene and she's emotionally not where she was 20 minutes ago in the movie, even though that was five years ago, whatever it was that she shot that, that's incredible. And that's also how many films talk about things coming together in the edit, right? Yeah. And you try to do a pickup later. You can't do that. There is no no pickups. (laughs) No. And that's it. And that's to me is like the restraint. See, I, I, as I get older, I'm trying to be more, I'm trying to take things like that I'm doing and take my time with them and not like, go rush into things, um, whatever, whatever it is, music, movies, whatever it would be, because like you have to take a step back and go, okay, uh, you have to live in this bubble where you're making something, right? And you have to know that it's going to work. Like Richard had the whole thing in his mind, right? For 12 years, whatever it was, but he couldn't like see it until the 12th year he puts it all together. Think about that yeah. for a second. So I, as a, I don't know how you that. like Go to sleep I mean, and night. also he could have lost any of those actors at, at, at any That's point. Eleven right. years in, the the you know the the guy that played the kid could have gone. You know, I'm done. Yep. Yeah, did his exactly. daughter want to back out? Wasn't like, yeah. like I read a story that she was like because his daughter plays one of the kids in the film and she grew up in the movie. Like literally, you grow up. I mean, and they, I think she's in less scenes because she didn't want to be in it anymore. Yeah, and I think she they had kind done, of wrote around her character. Right. Imagine like she had done the first eight years, right? And then she's like, ah, I don't really want to be. A, a, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but yeah. you like like that's crazy. And she didn't have to contractually probably do it. I mean, and like, but you know also, I mean? here, here's the thing about Boyhood, though. It's still a good movie despite like all that. It's Agreed. not like, to me. It transcends the, the 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 notion of. Oh, I agree. This happened. Well, that's the point I'm making is that at the end of the day, when you sit down and watch Boyhood, all the technicalities of the production, that's what's on screen. So like yeah. that's what the director was able to deliver tonally over 12 years with the same cast while they were all living their own lives and going through things emotionally differently than everybody. You know, it's pretty wild if you think about it. It's it's amazing. So Danny Gurch uh, picked Boyhood, but she also says the Before Trilogy. Now, this is just cheating. You can't just throw out the entire Before Trilogy or Boyhood. That's <laughs> yeah. not how the game works. I uh, choose Michael- this film, but also these three other films. <laughs> Michael Kamen says uh, Before Sunset. Sam Lenz, David Taylor, and Caitlin uh, all chose School of Dwayne Johnson. Uh, Jim Mehta, our friend who's recovering from back surgery uh, hey. and starting up a middle school year. Good luck, Jim Mehta, says Dazed and Confused. I feel like we barely even touched on Dazed and Confused in this conversation. Uh, and Carrie Case, 
uh, is representing Texas by choosing Bernie. Jake, I am legitimately surprised you did not pick a more Texas-themed. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I will say that Boyhood really struck a chord with me because the kid's growing up in Houston. His dad takes him to see the Astros at the Astrodome. Um, yeah. So so that really, really did strike um, a chord with me because there it was very relatable. There are a lot of uh, – I mean, he goes to – he's walking around enough. downtown Houston. Um, you know, but it, you know, it just uh, you know, I, I also like music, Sean. Hey, Sean, I'm, yeah. I'm more than just Texas. Richard uh, Linklater just texted me. He wanted oh, me to let he wanted me to let Sean know that yeah. Boyhood is not three movies; it's one film. So just a heads oh, up that he wanted to make sure you knew it was one movie, not twelve. So just good. a heads up. Yeah, that, yeah, that's good to know. Because yeah, I mean, because be... he, he was going to release it in twelve parts, but he knew that you you know you thought Kill Bill was I would have been two movies. Confused. Right, right, yes. right, right. So Kill Bill. And I don't want to have to fight with another yeah. filmmaker. Boyhood that Volume One, Boyhood Volume exhausting. Two. Yeah. Yes. So you know, he wants to let you know it's one movie, not twelve. Okay, good to know. All right, cool. uh, next week I'll tell him he said thank you. We will be playing hashtag John Travolta Blend. Yes. For everybody who wants to uh, play along at home. Now, I know that you might automatically think that our picks would be either Pulp Fiction or Face Off, and they very well may be. But when we discussed briefly the idea of doing John Travolta Blend, it was made fairly clear that that we might not choose those. And that was enough for us to decide that this was a reason to Can we or can we not choose Welcome Back, Cotter? No. No, it's a TV show. You're a TV show. You're a TV show. I, I'm looking ahead into the future of, of Real Blood episode 81, and yes. we all choose Pulp Fiction, and then Gabe's going to turn on his mic and go, we, what a predicament. That's what's going to happen uh, after we all choose that. And that's going to be the end of the episode. You know, so so I'm, I'm genuinely about to like like stop this and go watch Face Off. I'm Wait, like, like, what that's what I'm doing devil? tonight. What is the handsome line? Woo! Wee, you you're looking. good looking. You're hot. <laughs> you're hot. <laughs> that's an improvised line. And we'll, we'll, we'll discuss this next week, but... That line is improvised. Like he, That's what I say to, to Kevin every time I see him. He just walked into that set and then he said Wu would let him just like, you know, that movie is, that movie, you, okay. Sean, yes, Sean, you week. say this all the time. We'll talk about I'm going to watch it right now. I'm literally going to watch Sean, it right now. All right, well, before you go watch it, Sean yeah. says this all the time. How does this yeah. movie exist? I want you to actively think about a serious situation where you yeah. walk into a studio <laughs> boardroom and pitch face off. Like, yeah, it, yeah. It, that movie. I think, yeah, I think it's an easy pitch. Oh, no. It's not. A, dude, think about the 90s a, technology. It's a brilliant movie. It's one of yeah. my favorite movies ever made. But think about pitching that film. All right. <laughs> it's it's Kevin, crazy. Ke- and let's see if Kevin picks it over Pulp Fiction next week when we play hashtag John Travolta Blend. So in order to do that, you can play along on social media at Real Blend. You can go to your email account and send us an email at Real Blend. At cinemablend.com. You can follow the show. We are at Real Blend on Twitter. Jake is at, at Jake's Takes. Kevin is at, at Kevin McCarthy yeah. TV. And my and new I'm Twitter handle O'Connell. Yes. is um, at Battlefield Earth Blend. That's my new Twitter handle. He loves that movie, by the way. He still defends the fact that he was in that movie. He said he had a blast making it. And Sean, um, I, I did cut you off over your Twitter handle. Please repeat. Sean underscore O'Connell. Um, although someone from Cinema Blend retweeted the Real Blend account and put Sean underscore O'Connell 33. Now, I do put 33 at the end of my thing a lot. Uh, no, I don't think it was either of you guys. I don't actually don't know if you guys have used the Twitter account yet. 33? Yeah. Plus I gotta four. be honest. I barely <laughs> use my own Twitter account, much less... Well, get better I, at that. I, 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 I fought it for... I fought, fought it. I fought for the right to, to have access. <laughs> yes, And now that I have it, I don't care anymore. <laughs> that sums up a lot of Jake Hamilton, basically. <laughs> I just want to have the right... Right. He doesn't really want to do it. Wait, yeah. Guys, but don't we? tell him he can't. All right, I got to go. All right, but- drop his review on iTunes. Uh, it means a lot to us. 
Okay, uh, we'll be back next week with um, some very more fun interviews, uh, some news and reactions to things, and um, I-, I don't know, the, uh, episode number 81. Talk to you guys next week. Dunkirk! This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.